Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about defining scope mm. in more ways than one. <laughs> I can't wait to dive into this one. Cool. Yeah, me too. I was kind of surprised at our pre-show chat that there was <laughs> there was uh, some disconnect about the definition. And that, to me, is like a great reason to do an episode. I love it when we disagree. Yes. Yes. It's fun. Yes. The, I think the vague, you know, words that are vaguely defined or used differently is, well, that's kind of the point of, of this episode. Mm-hmm. It's like a very, very um, problematic for communication. And when you have a kind of, you know, call it a consultant client relationship and the, the consultant is an expert in a particular domain and the client is an expert in their own domain, but it's a different one, they'll, it's really common to use be using the same words and think you're talking about the same be thinking you're talking about the same things but really the meanings are completely different of those words in your mm-hmm. heads and yeah. i wrote an email recently about you know like imagine a big tree picture it you know it's this it's like that it's like the other and now um, i guarantee you it's not the same picture of a tree that i have because you know unless you grew up in my hometown you're not picturing the same tree we both know what a big tree is in general but the specifics of the word are actually kind of vague and it's you're going to be it's going to have a different meaning for you depending on your experience with big trees you know and the <laughs> same goes for branding the same goes for marketing you know the words branding marketing uh, purpose mission vision uh, strategy all of these words people use them and you sort of know what each other are talking about but it's pretty common for the pictures in your heads to be very different about what the actual meaning is and the one that the one that the email was about is about making sure you actually understand what that big tree inside the client's head looks like when, you know, if they're hiring you to paint a picture of it. So you really need to know, because if you paint your big tree, it's, they're going to be like, that's not what I was picturing, you know? So mm-hmm. you, you have to, in, in, in my world, you would have a sales interview and do the why conversation to figure out what their underlying business outcome is, like the motivation for the project, why do they want to do this at all? What does success look like? What does the big tree look like? Mm-hmm. And you know, once you know that, then you can first of all decide if you have any confidence that you can contribute to reaching that goal. And uh, and then if you believe or have confidence that you can, then you I would come up with some prices to uh, assign to that. And then here's the here's the disagreement. I would scope last. And to me, and I think all software developers, the word scope means what features are going to be included? What are the things that I'm going to have to do? What are the kind of tactical level, step by step by step by step uh, attributes or activities that are going to be required to create this overall outcome? But then when I and said that, yeah, and Rochelle was like, that's not what scope means to me. <laughs> exactly. So in, in my world, scope is was always what is the client trying to achieve what's the objective Mm -hmm. because you can't do what you just called scope without that so i've always included that in my definition of a scoping meeting Mm -hmm. and i think part of the reason i did that is uh, earlier in my career i worked primarily with actuaries and a lot of actuaries are very focused on numbers. They're very numbers and analysis driven. And that's all they could focus on. So when I would explain what I meant by scope, they're like, oh, okay, well, you handle that part of the meeting and I'll handle the part where we start to talk about what that looks like. So yeah, so for me, scope is always, what is the client looking for? Because if they define or describe something that we can't deliver, 
there is no use having, you know, this conversation, right? There's nothing to scope out if we can't deliver their vision. And that doesn't mean we can't have the conversation to say, well, here's why I think this, the way you've described this, why we can't produce that. Because is it something that somebody else could do that we can't, maybe? Mm -hmm. Or is it something that we just don't think is possible? And client might disagree and go find somebody else who says it is possible. Right. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's funny that we use the words differently because, you know, like the, the vision or the goal or the outcome, those are, those are, to me, those are requirements before I would even write a proposal for anything because I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's feasible, you know, whether it's feasible in general, like we want, we want you to build, build an application that's got this and that and the other. And they're basically describing Facebook and we're going to be the next Facebook. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, I don't believe in that. Maybe you can find someone that believes you can do that. And, you know, you, you have the next TikTok or something. Uh, but if, I, if I'm not confident that it's possible or feasible and, uh, or, I'm, or I'm confident that I'm the wrong person to do it, then I would just pass on it. And there would be no point in talking about what I would consider the scope, which is the list. Of, well, what, what, would, what do you call the list of things that you have to do to achieve the outcome? Well, that's part of scope. I'm just saying the first conversation is part of scope too, for me. Mm -hmm. And it's just a question of where you stop. So if we don't agree on the vision, there is no further scoping. It is over. Okay. That makes sense then. So you just see the scoping as the overall, like, let's define where are we going? How do we get there? That sort of thing. But what sounds controversial about that, but shouldn't be, is that when I was in a big firm, people would go ahead and scope anyway, even when we couldn't do the vision. Or they'd want to. I mean, they didn't on my teams because it was stupid and I'm not going to make a client go through that process, nor do I want the feeling of putting all that, all those eggs in that basket and then losing because we should lose because we're the wrong choice. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. So what happens in the software world is that maybe maybe this is because there's um, an interface or like a a deliverable that people can picture or something that's maybe a little more tangible, even though it's digital. Because what usually happens is clients will come to you with a self-diagnosis and they'll say, oh, mm-hmm. um, I need some web features and I heard that you build web features. So here's a list of web features that I want. I want my website to do this and that and the other and collect email addresses and be responsive and and with blue buttons that are this particular shade of blue and they need to be this big and they want to, they're basically giving you orders and they're expecting you to take the orders and they they're coming to you with a scope basically they're coming to you with what i would call a, a it's like tactics i see what you mean like for you a scope doesn't it doesn't make any sense to put together a scope if you don't know where you're going because it could you know that's like a you know ready fire aim type of situation well then we're order takers instead of consultants and- right right Exactly. And tons of people in my space do that. They're like, oh, a client. Thank God. <laughs> Who knows what they want? I'll do. Yeah. You, st- you start billing. I'll go find out what they want. You know, that's the classic <laughs> joke. So f- for for us, let's say, it's really common for, for clients to come in with like this picture in their head of, you know, I, I want you to paint me a picture of a big tree and I want the the diameter to be like this and the trunk is going to be a little gnarled and there's going to be like initials carved in it and it's going to have a branch here and a branch here and a branch here and like my shtick is always to say okay great you know to to people software developers who want to get away from that it's like listen to all that and take notes and after they've gone for 15 20 minutes if they haven't exhausted themselves 
you know, politely say, okay, let's, I've got all these notes. These are all things I can do, but why do you want the picture of the tree in the first place? What are you trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And push it back to that, like, what's the big picture here? What is the desired business outcome or the transformation that you're looking for? Um, and then, and then I would get an idea of what it might be worth to a client like this. And then when I go to write a proposal, I would come up with three prices. And once I had the three prices, I would use those essentially as a budget to say, okay, what's, what scope can I do for this price? Which is really controversial in my world, in the software development mm -hmm. world, because everybody scopes first, but I scope last, which is right. like, what, how could I possibly? So, yeah, well, it, well, plus in that example, I assume you're, you're using value pricing. Yeah. Yeah, because you could go through that same thing um, and have three prices because of you know what you see needs to be done. Whether you put it on, whether you price it based on value or something else, value's better. Mm -hmm. I think we all agree to that. But there, there's a number of ways you could do that and still come to the same end. Yeah, I think value value is the way to do it, but it is the hardest way. I think it's the most fair right. and I think most equitable equitable to both parties. But it is pretty hard. Uh, so. It's just a, a tough skill to build. You need a lot of practice with it. But mm -hmm. even if you don't value price, if you just like fix price it, I still would set the prices not based on on my cost. I would set the, I would just right. set prices based on what I think the contribution air quotes should be worth to the client. So if the contribution is, you know, if I've got three options in my proposal, which I would always have three options in a project proposal, and I know that what they're trying to do is, I don't know, um, decrease the bounce rate on their website then there's like okay if they if a company like this e-commerce company they sell ten thousand dollar couches they're really busy and if i could move the needle a little bit for them it's got to be worth ten thousand dollars that's like one couch so okay ten thousand dollars and then i'm gonna have an option at twenty two thousand dollars and an option at fifty thousand dollars all right so there's my there are my prices now i'm smart with web stuff now i'm gonna think how can i apply my smarts to contribute to this goal of decreasing their bounce rate or whatever metric they want to move. So then I would just say, well, what could I do for 10,000? Like, eh, maybe I, you know, they've got one internal web developer. Maybe I give them a half day workshop with some training and some follow on support. Uh, give them top 10 low hanging fruit, things that they can fix themselves. And, you know, everybody's happy off to the races that, you know, so I contributed to the goal by uh, helping upskill their internal web developer just just mm -hmm. as an example but the point is i didn't go into the sales meeting thinking i'm going to do a list of activities that i do on every engagement and hope that this client needs exactly those activities yes yes exactly you're so. you're listening and then you're applying that to what you can do to help them reach the big goal the tree Yes. So if they have, and if it's, you know, if it's a smallish company, like you can still value price small projects. So if, let's say it's a small company and they just need, you know, a, the value of a complete and total transformation that they're looking for, they'd maybe spend a thousand bucks on it or 10,000 bucks, like tops. So the beauty of value pricing is that, okay, fine. So like, what could I do for a hundred bucks to help this client? What could I do for you know, 300 bucks to help this client? What could I do for 500 bucks to help this client? And you come up with the scope later. You sure as heck can't do any development at those numbers. That would be ridiculous. But maybe you could give them free access to your uh, video course, or you could give them a bundle of e-books that you've written, or, you know, for numbers that are that low, you just find something that you can do uh, at a, at a it, maybe there's nothing, but you find something that you could do at a, 
a, a scope that you could do, I would call it a scope that you could do that makes the price seem equitable to you. You're like, eh, it's only a hundred bucks, but all I did was mm-hmm. mail them a book and with, you know, with highlights in it or something like, okay, I highlighted the passages that are going to be most important to you. There's your book, signed copy, love me. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and maybe a follow-up phone, a 30 minute follow-up phone call in three weeks after they have a chance to read the book and implement some things, you know? Maybe it's, that's it's not what you feel. You. It's what you feel good about that is provided value to them, right. and you can feel good about your services at a lot of different price points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you start to get down to lower price points, you're starting to you're starting to look at like info products and and physical products and you know thirty minute consultations, like really really small things. But you know whatever the you know nonetheless, those sorts of small things could be could contribute to the goal in a given situation. And they can always, you know, they could say, no, I don't really want a, a highlighted copy of your book for a hundred bucks. It's like, okay, never mind. Mm-hmm. But, but that's the, that's, that's what I mean when I talk about um, doing the scope last. It's like, figure out what the goal is, get a rough idea of what that's worth to a company, at least in an order of magnitude. Like you can tell if it's a hundred thousand dollar thing or a thousand dollar thing or a million dollar thing, but roughly. And then you're like, eh, well, I'm going to set some price and I believe I can contribute to this outcome. So I'm going to pick uh, 10% of that, 22% of that, and 50% of that. And then those those are my budget numbers. Now, what could I do for $100,000 to help these people move the needle? Or what could I do for $1,000 to help these people move the needle? And you, so it, you know why I think that's so important, Jonathan, is because mm-hmm. it breaks the mindset. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's like the first time you do that is so powerful because all of a sudden you're, you're sitting there going, oh, I'm not thinking I need 20 hours for this, I need 15 hours for this, I need five hours for this. What happens if they go here? How much more time is that going to take me? It When you break that mindset, you can start to see things that you didn't see before. So even if you don't go value pricing whole hog 100%, you start to question how you're doing it and look for new ways to try it. Yeah, exactly. You come up with new ways to package your expertise. So instead of thinking, I'm a person who writes Rails code, or you know, I write Ruby, I build Rails apps, and that's what I do. I build, I write code to build web like Rails apps. If you if you just think of yourself that way, it's extremely limiting. And mm-hmm. a lot of clients who come through the door or leads that come through that you could probably work with at a lower price point, doing something else and actually helping them in a way that's much easier for you and affordable to them. You just don't even think of that stuff because you just think, oh, I, I work with my hands to build websites. That's all I do. But the, the, the beauty of this is it gets you thinking laterally about you think of your of all the possible ways that you could help instead of so instead of thinking i build rails apps you think i know how to build rails apps and you can package the expertise your know-how in a lot of different ways that don't include you building a rails app and i get a lot of push you know i get a lot of people will say stuff like <laughs> they'll say some stuff like well i just love writing code it's like okay well then that's you're putting that limitation on yourself another thing they'll say is um but i won't be able to you know, they'll play it out like to the logical conclusion and say, well, if I stop building Rails apps, I won't have good advice. I won't be able to, you know, I won't be able to advise people. Um, you know, I'll, basically, I'll get rusty and mm-hmm. I won't be, you know, so then that's like that. And again, I think that's silly because you would still be building Rails apps occasionally. Uh, you still have your hand in it, but you just don't need to be typing every single line of code for you to stay sharp with the latest and greatest features of Rails. And then the last well, thing, that, and there's one last thing that people will push back on, and they'll say, 
they feel like they're, this is sort of the, the empathetic altruistic angle, uh, uh, objection is they'll say, well, I could just tell them how to do it, but I would feel like I was throwing them to the wolves. I could really do it way better than they're ever going to do it. Uh, so really, mm-hmm. it's not fair to them for me to just send them my highlighted book when I know that they're going to learn things the hard way, so on and so forth. And my response to that is like, yeah, you're right, but they can't afford to hire you at full price for your most in- intense helicopter option thing. So is it better to give them some help or no help because you're not going to do it for the budget that they can spend so what people end up doing is just like all i do is write code or copy or take pictures or whatever and they don't imagine that they could do other you know apply their expertise in other ways for people who can't afford that most high touch service that they offer so they just leave a ton of money on the table yeah i think it's you know it's a classic conundrum in consulting if you start out with a particular skill and you apply that skill like a craftsman. And, you know, at some point, many people, not all, because some people will remain craftsmen their whole careers and they're so happy with that. Yep. Right. We've talked about that on the show. But a, a fairly large percentage will move from pure craftsman to something else. And whether that's a strategist or whether it's that you manage people who are doing what you used to do, there are opportunities to leverage. And there is no right or wrong. Mm-hmm. There's just opportunities to take your your knowledge, your skills, your expertise and translate it onto a bunch of different, um, whether it's a different business model, different platforms. The second that you have in your mind that you know how to versus you do just like with value pricing it opens up this new universe right yeah it's a huge mind shift mm-hmm. yeah it sounds subtle but it really isn't no it's giant right and it, it changes the it changes everything like when you go into a sales interview you stop thinking how can i convince these people to pay me to code for them and it turns into how can i help these people so it's like there's almost certainly some way that you can help them or they wouldn't be spending their time talking to you. So unless their Mm self-diagnosis is completely wrong, then, you know, there's probably a way that you can contribute to their goal. You still need to figure out what the goal is. Otherwise, you'll just end up applying best practices in a generic way and, you know, in, in painting the tree that's in your head, you know, the right way and perhaps not achieving the goal that they want and that's what that's one like dear listener if you've ever gotten to the end of a project and the ceo swoops in for the big reveal and is like this isn't what we need at all this isn't this isn't what i wanted (laughs) and everyone in the room is just staring at them like 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 please i think that's happened to everybody at least once it's because in the sales interview way in the beginning you didn't find out what the goal was, even though you did beautiful work and it conformed to all best practices and the website is wicked fast and it's accessible, it's responsive, it's all singing, it's all dancing. <laughs> it doesn't do what the buyer wanted. Yeah. That, well, well, in that case, they didn't recognize who the buyer was. Right? Well, it sounds like yes. the CEO didn't get a, his or her licks in at the beginning. Yes, that's true too. Yeah, this happened to us all too, because you, it happens once and you learn and you don't let it happen again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's why I I can be, uh, I mean, we're not really here to talk about the why conversation or sales interviews, but but that is sort of, it is strongly related. You know, it's like, it's like 
it's super important to scope last, not go into the sales meeting, assuming that you need to find some way to convince the client to pay you to do your thing. And no. be, it, so the funny thing about this too, is that uh, it, I get a lot of people when I, I recommend that pe people niche down or they specialize and they get really, really specific about what it is that they do or who they do it for. They just get focused. Uh, one of the common uh, objections is that, oh, well, I'll get bored. It'll be, um, I'll just be doing the same thing all the time. And it's, and that's not true. It's like, it, but I understand why they think that because they think that they're only going to apply that the same, like act, the actions that they enjoy undertaking or the actions that they feel a sense of mastery over in this case, coding, they, mm -hmm. they imagine that the only thing that they're going to do is code. Like that's the only thing that they have to offer is just add code. So they're like, if I only code for dentists named Steve in Providence, like super focused, <laughs> I'm going to get super bored and, and be, perhaps find it uh, really difficult to find enough clients who can, af can afford me, air quotes. And it's like, well, you're only selling like, you're, you're limiting yourself to selling the most expensive thing that you could do. There are a whole bunch of things that you could do that are much lower cost to you and you could price much lower. And it doesn't need to be value pricing. It could be productized services or products or whatever mm -hmm. that deliver value. And we haven't, haven't dropped the L word yet, but create leverage in the business so that you have some things that are repeatable and either can be sold to groups of people or um, can be, you know, over and over again at like a product, like a no touch delivery ebook or something or a video course or a productized service where you're doing the same scope over and over and over better and better and better for different clients. That's another way to do it without value pricing. Anyway, so. Well, I think you also, you can strip off the fun, the fun stuff. And of course, I'm a strategist. So to me, the fun stuff is strategy. But mm -hmm. I'm thinking of um, one of your readers that wrote into you, Jonathan, about why they were worried about getting 100% of the project price up front, that they, they might get bored and not finish because oh, yeah. they had all the money already. I love that interchange. I love that. Because the outcome of that was, well, then maybe the problem isn't the, the arrangement. The problem is the work. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and this reader basically came to the conclusion that the strategy part is what he really loves. Now, can he do just the strategy without the other stuff? He's kind of created a way through his leverage business model to do that. But there, you know, certainly we can all find a way to, to, you know, strip off the things that we really love and find a way to focus on those. Right. Yeah. Identify the pieces that you really enjoy and just sell those, or at least work toward just selling those. So, yeah, it's usually it doesn't happen in a nanosecond. And no. it's, you know, it's sometimes though what happens, I've had this with clients, there's this aha moment like, oh my God, I'm doing all this implementation, but I hate it. What I really love, what I live for is the front, you know, uh, day or two involved in figuring out the strategy, not the next nine months <laughs> to do all of this implementation, you know, light bulb moment. Yep. Right. And the, and the, I think part of the reason that they're blind to that, I'm pretty sure yeah, I know this from a fair amount of anecdotes, is that if they're billing by the hour, they don't, they're like, well, I could never just do the fun piece because I'd only get paid like $1,000 and I would starve because mm -hmm. it only, t it doesn't take that long. And I'm like, yeah, 
That's the beauty of it. It doesn't take that long. It's very valuable. You just, if you bill by the hour for it, you're going to go out of business. But if you price it, instead of billing for your time, you price your work, you put a price tag on it. All of a sudden, people aren't thinking about the hours. They're thinking about the outcome. And what's the outcome of you know, a strategy session? It's peace of mind. It's clarity. It's uh, savings on the, on the build. It's decreased risk. There's so many things that you get immediately with a strategy. So it's like, you know, that, that people trust and like, oh, this is going to be, this is perfect. This feels right. This is going to be amazing. And, and, and guess what? And now you get like decent amount of profit. I mean, profit wise, it'll probably be great. Yes. You know, like if you divided your, your out, your, your time spent by number of hours, you'd have an effective mm-hmm. hourly rate of like double or triple what you'd normally charge by the hour. And so that's great. And if you want to take on the implementation, fine, but that's a separate piece and you could quote it separately. So you'd say like, oh, you know, you guys don't really know what you want. There's not a clear picture here. We need a blueprint before we start building the house. So let's $10,000. We'll make the blueprint for you. We'll have the plan. We'll all come to agreement, set the, the, the objective, the strategy, the tactics. We'll come up with a three, you know, at least three months out. We'll have a plan. We'll set up some milestones and you'll feel like set. And they'll be like, yeah, 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 let's do that. And then at the end, they're going to be like, but can you build it for us now? It's like, well, I'm going to be the most expensive one. You should really shop this around. But no, no, no. How much? Give us a quote. Because they already trust you. They, they're going to want you to do the implementation. And if you still need that work for cash flow reasons, then give them a quote and say like, oh, here's three ways we can engage, small, medium, and large. Pick the one that feels right to you. And I can get started on Tuesday. Yeah, I think you can also um, turn that around and do it a little bit differently. You could do that, but then you could also say there are, and again, it depends on your practice area, but there are some functions where they want to separate implementation from strategy. Because if you have a firm, and I'm going to call it a firm versus a person, if you have a firm that's known for implementation, they don't trust the strategy, i.e. if if I implement PeopleSoft strategy uh, software, then maybe I'm not the one to look at a strategy and decide which software is the right one, or you know, which what what is what makes the most sense strategically. So another way to do that is that you do the front end strategy work, and then instead of doing the implementation, you are part of it. Maybe you are um, on retainer to if it's a team that's working through this, you're on retainer to them. That's what I would do. Yeah, yeah, you go to a meeting a month or you have a certain number of calls or something per month and you help make sure that the vision becomes a reality, but you're not actually doing the work. And oh my God, that is so much fun. Oh yeah. So much fun to work that way. Yeah, I call it project oversight. So it's like an advisory retainer, but specifically to oversee a project that you... You know, think I like the the house metaphor. So you, you're the the architect. You did the blueprints with the client. They're super happy. They they see the vision. They love it. And then they say, "Could you just sort of hang around? We're going to get this built. Obviously, you're not going to build it. You're the architect. So, but could you kind of like walk the job site every couple of weeks or so? Make sure that everything's going up as expected. And if you see, you know, if you're walking around, and you're like, "Oh, that's the wrong kind of concrete," or you know, the window's supposed to be over there. That gives a, the client loads loads of peace of mind because they're not an expert they're not going to recognize that something's wrong until Mm -hmm. it's way too late and i mean this is a this is this is how i have people it's like a common transition path so that i that i recommend for people if they're doing implementation now and they're sick of it they've been doing it for 10 years they're sick of it and they know they're sick of it i'm like start selling the blueprint and then project oversight and hand the, the build off. If the if the blueprint is good, you can get garden variety, you know, intermediate mm-hmm. level developer or builders yeah. to build it. 
and you just put them and put the client in touch with people you trust, people you've worked with in the past or someone you communicate really well with, have them build it, you show up and make sure that all the nails are going in the right place. And if there are any surprises, you're on hand to make a decision about, you know, which way to go with the fork in the road, super valuable to clients. Yeah, and there's a model in home building where the architect takes a percentage of the total build cost. So there's even a model for how to price it. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never thought of pricing it that way, but that's no, certainly but, reasonable. But, but the idea is that it's a, it's an interesting metaphor when you think about negotiating with a client. So yeah, I'll help you. It's it's kind of like an architect um, and the builder. And so I'll be, you know, you can kind of tell that story and then and you come up with a price, whatever that price is, whether it's value pricing or something else. Um, and, and you've got something to talk about. I think the cost of an implementation just tells you... Um, I don't want to say it tells you the value, but it implies value mm -hmm. to the client. So if it's a million dollar project, you know, you're not going to charge a thousand dollars. Yeah. That makes no sense. Right. So, you know, you, you go by the value of the project, not, you don't have to tie it directly, but it has to make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. I, I, I'm not surprised that we got into pricing considerations because that has a lot to do, like people are really worried about how to price something and they want to know the scope up front so they can pick a, an, I'll call it an air quotes price because it's usually an estimate in my world. So mm -hmm. they, they want to find out the scope up front and then you know the list of things to do scope. Right. And so, well, it'll probably take me this long to do this list of things uh, at my hourly rate, you know, times my hourly rate, it'll probably be about this much. And then they get to work and it turns out that, what do you know? Lo and behold, the client's <laughs> not an expert at web development or whatever you're an expert at. And they forgot to tell you some things. It's, oh, geez, sorry, client. It's going to take twice as many hours. And now oh, you've got a fight on your hands and all these, these problems. So right. like this, the scope. Everybody at the, hates that. Yeah. The scope at the beginning is it, maybe you nail it, but odds are that it's too small anyway. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I would rather find out up front what the person's trying to achieve with all of these activities and all these features and all these bells and whistles and stuff. What are you trying to achieve? Increase sales, decrease cost? Tell me, like, let's figure it out because I want you to be a hundred percent satisfied at the end. So let's find out what the, where the goalposts are before we even start. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to play this game if I can't score. So if you decide that you can, then how much is the score worth? Set some prices that are a fraction of that. And then the list of activities comes in. Then you decide, well, how much work can I do? What scope of work can I write down here that I can do for this price and, and be super happy? Like at every price, I would be like, I would pick a scope for every price that is a scope of work for every price that is something that I would be happy they picked like so it's not like yes not like oh crap they picked one that was going to be my lost leader you know it's like no <laughs> no just pick a scope of work at each price point that you'd be perfectly happy to do and uh, just make it clear what the benefits of each one are and then they can make a value-based decision however you calculated the number they can make a decision based on what the benefits appear to be at each price point and the delta between one, two, and three and say, oh, well, the, the difference between one and two, it's worth it. Let's go with two. Three's, eh, three's out of the ballpark, but let's do two. But the other thing that's, that's buried in there that's really important if you're a client is those are fixed price quotes. Yeah. So you're not going to get that, oh, I thought it was 30,000. Oops, sorry, now it's 60. <laughs> and the client hates that. 
They feel stupid because they have to go back internally and get more money. They look at you as the developer or consultant and say, well, why didn't you figure this out in the beginning? So there's mm-hmm. that little bit of a rift between you. I mean, nobody wins in that scenario. And when we're so worried about protecting that, that, oh, I want to make sure that I'm not going to be on the hook for that, it, it, it impacts the relationship. Yep. But so having those fixed fee points, however you get to them, is huge from a client perspective. It makes you such an attractive choice. Yeah, it's a major and not because you're cheap. No, yeah, you're... not because you're cheap, but because you're saying this is what it's going to cost. Boom. Right. It's probably more than any estimate they'll get if you're smart. You know, if you're yeah. doing if you're doing this well, I, I commonly it was very normal for me to say like, look, I'm going to send you some prices. They're going to be higher than anybody else, almost guaranteed. But they're fixed. And if if anybody else, like I'll stand behind them. If anybody else sends you a price, air quotes, price that's lower than mine, make sure you ask them if they'll stand behind those numbers or if it's just an estimate. And if they won't stand behind their numbers, then you just keep that in mind when you're making your decision. Oh, I, I built a firm on that. I mean, I left <laughs> a giant firm and said, all right, what are they doing that clients hate? Easy. Mm-hmm. Always spending more than whatever was quoted. So I just quoted firm fees. And, you know, our costs were lower than the big firm. So even though I quoted a number that for us was big, if you compared it to, you know, name brand firms at that time, ours was reasonable and it was a sure thing. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got a lot of work doing that. Yeah, it's a massive differentiator. I mean, if I have my way and my mission to rid the world of hourly billing works, <laughs> then it won't be a differentiator. Someday, I hope there will not be a differentiator. But Probably, you know, in our lifetimes, I'd be surprised if hourly billing completely was eradicated. Well, yeah, it's 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 easy not to do it or easier when it's just you. When you have a firm of people, there's a little it's it's a little tougher, but there's still a way. Oh, yeah. The, tra- it's, the transition is the hard part. If you start from whole cloth, it's much easier if you just start out that way. But if you if you have a especially if you have a firm. Because if you have a firm, you probably have lots of systems, everything from accounting to time tracking, of course, and you've mm-hmm. got bonus structure, you've got all of these policies and procedures and systems. And, and all, with most uh, firms I've come across, the, the billable hour is a central assumption across all of these things. So get yes. it. that's why I call we it a cancer. at the altar of the billable hour. Yeah, that's why I call it a cancer because it, it just... It just just invades the entire firm so getting it out is really hard mm-hmm. but if you if like what i did i just left and i started my own and and started from scratch like that so i didn't have any systems i didn't have it was just me i didn't have bonus structures i didn't have uh incentives based on how many hours you build like none of that stuff so it was mm-hmm. so much easier yeah, I mean, that was the case in the thing I just described. I mean, yeah. we just left and we said, okay, this is how we're going to work. So everybody that we brought in knew that, made yep. it a whole lot easier. Right, yeah. You can, it's the, you know, not to scare, you know, <laughs> bum people out who have a firm that bills hourly. There are ways to transition for sure. But uh, yeah, it's it's just trickier. Um, cool. So do we, do you, after all of this, do we feel like we're on the same page with Scope? I think to me, it feels like your definition is just broader. Like it encompasses the, like, to me, you use the word scope. It's like, well, if I'm going to do a scope correctly, it's going to have a vision. (laughs) It's going to have a goal. And then we're going to scope it. It's kind of like, kind of like encapsulates the whole process. Yeah. I think part of it depends on the work that you're doing, right? Because so when I do strategy, scope is, 
is way squishier than if they said, okay, deliver me a website. It's very different in my mind. So I can scope in terms of talking about outcomes. This is what it will be like. And I'll have some of the, this is what I'm going to do, you know, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Right. But it's, it's simpler. I, I just, I think it is versus when you've got a lot of moving parts. Like when I used to do M&A work, oh my God, that was so hard to scope because everything's turning on a dime. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get this thing out of nowhere that we have to deal with. So, you know, that's difficult. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I do think we're talking about the same thing. When you think about value pricing and you're kind of turning some of this upside down, um, where as you describe it, you scope at the end. But I think we're talking about the same thing, whether you value price or not. It's the, what does the client want? Can I deliver what they want? And then the open question is, how? And that's the essence of scoping, ultimately, is the how are we going to get there? What does that look like? Yes, at a detailed level, like a a more detailed layer than the strategy. So the strategy is like a clear, concise version of like the high level approach to how we're going to achieve this objective. And then you're like, okay, now we've agreed on the strategy. And this would happen after the, uh, after the sales part, but it's just like, okay, here's the, here's the scope that this, in my case, this particular option would include, just like you said, some bullet points about I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. There's gonna be a couple deliverables, but the important thing is the benefit of this option to you is X Y and Z. These are the business benefits that anybody from uh, a line worker to the CFO is going to understand. It's like a six-year-old can understand the benefits. You're going Mm -hmm. to have lower uh, data entry costs, or you're going to have increased, uh, you're going to have a quicker time to market. You're going to have a lower bounce rate, like something obvious that anybody could understand. Mm -hmm. I don't know if my six-year-old understands bounce rate, but okay. (laughs) My 10-year-old definitely does. She's very smart. She probably does. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so have we left any stone unturned? I'm thinking. Um, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think I think we're saying, even though we disagreed at the beginning, I think we're we're saying the same thing. You know, it's it's this process of scope. And to me, um, oh, I know. There's one thing we didn't really talk about. I'll just throw in. I don't know that we need to talk any more about it. But the the client has a role in the scope as well. You know, when when you're writing a proposal, you also want to be clear about what your client has to do. What are their responsibilities? Oh, good point. Yeah, shared accountability. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because if they don't get you something in time, or they sit and you know the review process that was supposed to be a week is becomes three weeks, you know that kind of stuff. And not mm-hmm. to you know hammer them over the head with it, but just to be clear up front that this is a collaborative exercise and what everybody does. So that yes. that's the only thing I knew there was something I, I was missing in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So if I, I actually cover that in my proposal template in the risks and assumptions section and also with the getting paid 100% up front. So if they go dark on you, who cares? <laughs> That's their problem. <laughs> Gotta uh, love that. Yeah. Oh, especially in development. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it happens all the time. Like the client the client has always like got their hair on fire and then they hire you and you start and then you're always waiting for them. It's like almost, it's like a cliche. Oh, they, I, they've I, already got a full-time job. This is your full-time job. They have now two full-time jobs. So. Yes. 
But we're working on a website now and the developer was going away on vacation and he told us like three months ago he had this vacation and you know how it is everything slides downhill Mm -hmm. to the developer and he's like I'll bring my laptop on vacation and I said no you won't (laughs) I said we this happens every single time I know it happens you were very clear about the vacation listen if you want your laptop because you're going to play with your kids with it go ahead you do not need to be working on this while you're gone it's uh yeah it's like it's it slides well i mean it's only fair i it's like i'm not gonna yeah anyway that's just my theory about how we get the best work out of people is when they do good for you you do right by them yeah words to live by (laughs) i can hear the skepticism already in your voice no 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 (laughs) i'm just like picturing the inspirational poster (laughs) all right cool Uh, Okay, folks. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.